Now, Birdsong, fun and fascinating talk about the top stories in today's headlines. Birdsong may just be the most qualified talk show host in the business, thanks to his many careers in law, government, and education. Here's your host, Leonard Birdsong. Hello, folks. This is Birdsong back with you. So good to be back with you on the radio for another week. Got a big show for you today. We have a guest who's going to come on and talk about some new trends in immigration. And of course, I want to talk about some of the things that happened last weekend. We had the Children's March for Our Lives, 500,000 people in Washington, D.C. Then there's the Stormy Daniels story that won't go away. And, uh, Trump legal, Trump's legal team, that is President Trump, they're having trouble getting new lawyers. My old colleague Joe DeGeneva bowed out. There will also be some dumb criminal law stories, as usual, some riddles, and a Paul Harvey story about the rest of the story. But today, let's start with our guest. His name is uh, David J. Beer, and he is an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C., among other things. Mr. Beer says that there's a paradox in U.S. immigration right now because illegal border crossings are virtually non-existent and legal entries are through the roof. Now, David Beer, are you with us? Yes. Thanks, Thanks for so me much. On. Thanks so much for coming on. You know, I'm from Washington, D.C., and when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office there, I lived near the Cato Institute. I lived on the corner of 13th. In Massachusetts, I used to walk to the courthouse, and I passed the Cato Institute. So it's good to have you on. Tell us what's happening. I know you used to work on Capitol Hill, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, so it's really interesting what's happening right now. Um, the economy is really going, and you know, unemployment is at the lowest level it's been in a couple of decades now. And uh, really, a lot of job openings are opening up in the United States. And so all of these things would imply that we should be getting a lot more illegal immigration than we are currently seeing along the southern border. Uh, if you look back in 2006, uh, when unemployment was low and the housing bubble was at its uh, highest point, um, we had far more illegal immigration than uh, we do right now. And uh, I think the explanation for why we are not seeing the number of border crossings uh, that we did back then is the fact that we are now allowing far more people to enter the country legally through temporary seasonal worker programs, um, through, you know, for agricultural jobs, for construction jobs, for landscaping. Um, these positions are now being filled by legal temporary workers as opposed to the illegal immigrants that were coming in the 1990s and 2000s. And just now, let me just, some, just let me stop you there. Are these what they call H-2B visas? H-2A is for agriculture and H-2B is for non-agricultural uh, seasonal workers. And just for some context of the scale in which we're talking about the number of uh, border crossers that's gone down uh, since the 1990s, in 1996 you had more than 250 um, uh, people being apprehended for every border agent, meaning every border agent throughout 1996 caught 261 people trying to cross the border. Um, in 
2017, that number was down to 16 people. So right. a massive, massive decline from 261 down to 16. Um, and during that exact same time, the number of temporary workers entering legally has increased tenfold. So there are now ten times as many uh, temporary workers coming in. And so really the flow has shifted from illegal to legal, and I think that's a really good thing for the country. Well, let me just say, I think that's a good thing, too. I don't know if you know so much about my background. I used to be a State Department consular officer overseas. I've issued lots of visas, not a lot of H-2Bs, though, a lot of H-1Bs uh, and other kind of visas. And I um, became an immigration practitioner when I practitioner when I left the uh, service. And where, after where that, I became a, became a law professor who teaches about immigration. I I believe that I will. I don't understand, Mr. Beer, why we can't have in our immigration code more of a sort of a this temporary worker type visa in the legislation that the Gang of Eight came up with a while back. They had something for, I think, uh, a full time seasonal worker visa that a lot of people could utilize, but that didn't go anywhere. Were you a involved in that yeah. writing that yeah absolutely i was very involved in that uh on the house side trying to get a proposal similar to that uh with my former boss congressman labrador of idaho um and really that's the big issue right now so we have these seasonal workers who can come in for agriculture and uh some for non-agriculture though that number is is limited to just 66,000 um per year um Congress just authorized an increase uh, above that, but we don't know how much the administration is going to increase it. But really the problem now is that you have these seasonal workers that are allowed to come in, but there's no program for non-seasonal jobs, for year-round work in these lower-end industries. And so dairies, for example, livestock, these are year-round occupations that have no work visa available to them at all. And uh, it's an invitation for illegal immigration. And so if we really want to just eliminate the illegal immigration problem, we have to have a work visa available to all types of jobs, not just, you know, seasonal ones. And uh, that's really the big fight now and uh, trying to get that fixed. All right. I believe in just what you're saying. I've been talking about this for years to some of the students I've taught in the immigration courses that I developed uh, when I was a law professor. But now can you tell me... Mr. Beer, are many of these, or do we have numbers on the people who come in as seasonal workers or agricultural workers? Are they overstaying their visa in some case, cases? No, not at all. Um, so the the you know studies that have been done and the you know statistics that have been put out there all indicate that it's less than three percent. So ninety seven percent of uh, of all of these temporary workers who come in legally. They don't want to risk losing that status. They don't want to lose that opportunity to come back next year, have a job, work legally, um, go back to their home country, and um, you know uh, accumulate wealth uh, for for their for their home country. And uh, that's really what we're seeing is these industries that hire these H two workers. They invite the same workers back year after year after year, and you have some. H-2A workers who have been working on farms for now 
uh, over two decades. And uh, so, yeah, the incentives are all to abide by the law and not uh, risk losing that uh, legal status. Well, that's good to hear. Do you think some of the policies that the Trump administration has done about deportation of illegal aliens kept some people from coming across the border illegally? Maybe there's a chilling effect, would you say? I think I think there is an effect, um, possibly on the employer side, too. So the concern that you cannot hire uh, unauthorized immigrants um, encourages them to enter the process of of uh, hiring someone through the, the legal process. Um, how much of an effect that is, I mean, this has been a trend that has been going on since 1996. Uh, so it's not a, you know, not something that's just originated with Donald Trump. It's something that's, you know, continued under the Clinton administration, uh, Bush administration, uh, Obama administration, and now under the Trump administration as well. And so it, I, I don't want to give him too much credit, but I think that, you know, there's certainly some extent being driven by a concern about the availability of uh, illegal workers that are, you know, uh, driving employers to hire people through the legal process. Yeah, well, you know, we Obama didn't get that much press about that, nor did Clinton or George Bush, but certainly the Trump administration has had so many headlines about arresting illegals and deporting them. It's all in the news and in our face. So it may be uh, working. But let me just ask you this. Now, we, you're saying that illegal border crossings are down, and I take it this is from statistics from the Department of Homeland Security or through Customs and Border Patrol? That's right. The Border Patrol publishes these statistics every year. Right. So the question then for my listeners, is there a need for us to have a wall across the southern border, all 22,000 miles of it, 22,200 miles of the southern border? No, absolutely not. And, and you know, the idea that uh, we would build a project that's, you know, going to cost as much as the interstate highway system um, that has zero economic value for the country. I mean, this is not going to make us a more prosperous uh, country to have a gigantic, uh, you know, infrastructure project along the border, um, unlike the interstate highway system, which obviously has a lot of economic value. Uh, the best thing we can do to secure the border is allow people to enter the country legally through other means, work visas, family reunification, um, whatever we need to do, let them come in legally. We don't have to deal with this problem. We don't need to have an army along the border. We don't need a giant wall. Um, all of that saves enormous amount of taxpayer dollars that could be better spent on projects that actually enhance human welfare instead of, uh, you know, wasting it on, you know, a vanity project for the president. Mm-hmm. And that's what it would be, a vanity project, but a it was, um, I guess, a talking point and a campaign promise, but I don't know that it's going to really go anywhere. You have, from what I saw of you on your website, you have talked about, and you've talked about a lot about visas. I know you know about visas. I know a lot about visas, but you talk about state-issued visas. Is that right? Yeah. So this is a new idea um, that uh, we've really been leaders on promoting is the idea of 
rather than just having the federal government really have a monopoly over deciding the types of workers who can come in, federalize some of the immigration decisions to the state level. And so then the state could essentially act as the sponsor for workers who are coming in and say, we want this type of worker or we want entrepreneurs. There's right now no visa available for someone who wants to start a business in the United States. And that's really a bad, you know, that's, that's a major defect of our federal immigration system. But if a state wanted to do that, they could shift over. And I really think if we had had this system over the last three decades where the states could act as sponsors for workers, they could adjust the flow of workers naturally on their own, and they wouldn't have to beg the federal government, please reform the system. There's a crisis. There's a crisis. And, you know, keep going back to uh, the same you know, failed attempts at at fixing the system, they could fix the system on their own and adjust the flow uh, on an ongoing piecemeal basis. Well, it sounds really good. I don't know if Congress will really go for it. I hope they do. You you probably know that in the late 1800s, up until about just before the First World War, Germany had a program where they brought in seasonal workers from Poland for many, many years to uh, plant the crops and then reap the crops, and then the Poles would go back to Poland after that. Yeah, yeah. Worked worked very well. It worked very well, as I understand it. Uh, I've done some delving into comparative immigration schemes. Yeah, but, in the uh, 1950s and 1960s, the United States had uh, a large temporary worker program with Mexico, and the border was secure, and we didn't have all the border agents that we do today. Um, and when Congress did away with that guest worker program, which was known as the Bracero Guest Worker Program in 1965, after that, Border Patrol was telling Congress, they were testifying, if you get rid of this guest worker program, we know there is going to be a huge amount of illegal immigration that occurs in response. And they were exactly right. We had, after 1965, we had four decades of enormous amounts of illegal immigration, people crossing the border, more than a million people crossing the border every year. And um, Congress never rectified the mistake um, until recently. We've seen these increases in temporary worker programs, and that's a that's a good thing. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. It's a good and thing, again, and it always works. And so, let me just uh, last couple of questions here. I'm going to have to go to a break. So, it's is it your belief that our border, our southern border, is now secure? I wouldn't go that far. I mean, secure implies, you know, that we know every single person who's entering the country, and that's definitely not the case. In fact, uh, I point out in, in the piece that you referenced that, in fact, if people are attempting to enter illegally, the best statistics that we have indicate that between 50 and 75 percent of people who are attempting to enter will eventually succeed. And so that implies that we really should have a lot more illegal immigration because it's not terribly difficult for them to make it across the border and, and enter the country illegally. So really it's the, Ill, it's the legal process that we've made available that's preventing people from wanting to try the illegal process. And yes. so 
Uh, I don't think the border is secure. I think that more work needs to be done. But the work is really on the legal immigration system. We've already spent billions of dollars. We have 20,000 border agents now, and uh, it's still pretty easy to get in illegally. So why don't we try something different? Why don't we try the policy that we know is working, which is letting people enter the country legally and uh, as opposed to having to sneak across the border for jobs? To, to say amen to that, I say amen to that. I believe in you. It's been good talking with you. Uh, tell me this. This is the very last question. How do you become a policy analyst at the Cato Institute? Is it by working on Capitol Hill or being a State Department officer or what? What was your route? Uh, well, it was certainly through working on Capitol Hill and working on this issue for a number of years, uh, you know, building up the expertise in that area. And, um, you know, they wanted to hire me to promote their mission of individual liberty, free markets, limited government, and peace. And, uh, you know, that's what we stand for. And I think uh, immigration plays a big part in uh, promoting those principles. Well, it's well spoken. Uh, I, I agree with you. Thank you so much, David J. Beer, for coming on Birdsong, okay? Thank you. Appreciate it. Stick with us. We've got a big show here. We have more to talk to you about. Don't go away. Hello, folks. Thanks for staying with me. This is Birdsong again. We have more to talk about today. Our first segment just ended. Uh, we had a very interesting fellow, David J. Beer, from the Cato Institute, talking about immigration and particularly uh, short-term short or temporary worker or agricultural worker visas. They are increasing. However, last weekend on Saturday... And Sunday, there were some fireworks, you might say. Many of you may have looked at the March for Our Lives that was promoted by the student survivors of the shooting at Parkland High School on Valentine's Day. And uh, about 500,000 people showed up for this rally in Washington, D.C. It went on for three or four hours. The children all wrote their own speeches and made speeches to the crowd. I have to commend them. I think they're doing great work. I'm not against the Second Amendment. I don't think they want to destroy the Second Amendment. I think what these kids are doing is good for leadership. They're learning to be leaders. However, the good old NRA wants to rain on their parade. The NRA wants to rain on their parade. I found out after hearing the speeches and looking at the program that the National Rifle Association, the NRA, came up with a state book, a Facebook, I'm not, I'm sorry, not a state book, a Facebook statement later on Saturday, the day of the march, and they said in their posting on the day of the march, Gun-hating billionaires and Hollywood elites 
are manipulating and exploiting children in part of their plan to destroy the Second Amendment. And the word destroy is in all capitals and strip us of our right to defend ourselves and our loved ones. They also say that these students from the high school at Parkland, Florida, have been pawns. Now, one of the children came out and said, uh, I find it kind of amusing that the fact that we don't want to be shot and killed makes us pawns. I think the NRA has a place in our society, but sometimes I think they go too far. Out of the mouths of babes have come truths that these young people do not want to be killed in their school. They want reforms to our gun control laws. They don't say anything about removing the Second Amendment. Neither do I. I'm happy about the Second Amendment. I want people to have guns for their self-protection in their homes. And uh, the Supreme Court said you can do that. Also, I have some stats here that I came across after the march about gun laws. In a Quinnipiac University poll, 97% of the nation says they would support background checks for every gun sale. In this same Quinnipiac University poll, 83% of people support waiting periods to buy the guns, and 67% support an assault weapons ban. Now, these include, these statistics, these numbers include... NRA members, okay? Also, the Quinniac poll has found that many people are for banning bump stocks and silencers, which make guns deadlier in mass shooting situations. Common sense would dictate this. I don't see why the NRA has gotten their nose sort of out of joint over a number of 17 and 16 and 18-year-olds who want common-sense gun control. But, of course, that is the National Rifle Association's duty to, I guess, defend the Second Amendment, which they are doing. But don't give us a false narrative. Don't smear children who have been facing a active shooter in their school. It is unseemly, NRA. You don't have to do this. Now, having said all of that, I'm not an NRA hater. I don't want to take your guns. I want you to have as many guns as possible or the ones you want, as many as you want. But I do not think they should be used for killing people in schools or on the street. I think there should be some common sense rules and regulations. All right, got that out of my system. Let's talk about Stormy Daniels. Did any of you watch that 60 Minutes report last Sunday? 22 million people did see it. I also, I was one of them. I don't usually watch 60 Minutes. I saw Stormy Daniels. She came across as credible. There's no reason not to believe her story. However, she did take $130,000 to not say anything 11 days before the 2016 election. Now she wants to talk, and she has been talking. She said some very interesting things that some we knew about, some we didn't know about. One is that 
when she met Trump in his bedroom, he had only talked about himself for the first few minutes, and then she said uh, he had a magazine with his picture on the cover. She said, you talk too much. She rolled up the magazine and said, take your pants down, which he did, and she swatted him with the rolled-up <laughs> magazine. After that, she said, he became like everyone else, and they had a nice talk, and later on they had sex. But this is not really just about sex. We have a woman who is standing up to Donald Trump. She now claims that the $130,000 that she was paid by one of Trump's lawyers was a illegal campaign contribution. It's against federal law to do what her President Trump's lawyer did, and that because of that, her non non-disclosure agreement should be void. Also, yesterday, her attorney, Mr. Avenatti, he uh, filed a motion in federal court in California asking the court to be uh, to allow him to depose both Michael Cohen, President Trump's personal lawyer, and Donald Trump. Now, if you get anything from this Daniel story, the Stormy Daniel story, it's not so much the salaciousness of sex or having an affair. It's about whether they can keep her from deposing them. When you go into a deposition, you are under oath. You have to tell the truth. If later it's found out that you have not told the truth, you can be prosecuted criminally for liable, or you may be fined in a civil suit for liable. Neither Michael Cohen nor Donald Trump want to be deposed, but we will see what happens. Finally, in this segment, let me talk about Mr. Trump and his lawyers. They seem to be falling like flies. Last week I learned that Joe DeGeneva, my former boss in the U.S. Attorney's Office years ago, one was called by Trump and asked for him to join the legal ask of the DeGeneva, he and his wife, to come on as lawyers for the Mueller probe. They met with the president on Thursday, and they did not see eye to eye. From what I understand, the lawyers, DeGeneva and his wife, Ms. Tonzing, have conflicts because they represent at least one of the people who is been investigated by Mueller. The other information we have is that Trump just didn't have the right chemistry with them. Joe DeGeneva talks a very good game on television about how it's a conspiracy against him by the FBI and the Department of Justice, but he doesn't have any real facts. Having known Joe DeGeneva, having known that he was a line prosecutor like I was for a number of years in the U.S. Attorney's Office, he knows better than going around trying to badmouth the FBI. We used to work with the FBI. We used to work with the ATF. I'm glad that he is not going to get involved with this Mueller probe. So those are my ideas and opinions, and they are just my opinions on the Children's March for Our Lives, Stormy, Stormy Daniels, and Joe DeGeneva and the president and his lawyers. There will be more to come on this. Stay with us. 
We're going to come back with some dumb criminal law stories and a few riddles for you. You'll like it. This is Birdsong. back. This is Birdsong. Stick with us. I told you there's more to come in today's show. I've got some riddles. I'll give you the answers at the end of the show, but I think you might be able to figure these out. The first one is very, very easy. What did the beach say as the tide came in? What did the peach, I'm sorry, what did the beach say as the tide came in? That's an easy one. Think about it. The second one. What rock group has four guys that don't sing? What rock group has four guys that don't sing? That's a little bit harder, but think about it. Finally, the third one for today. What would drive you to sheer madness? What action would drive you to sheer madness? That's the question. Think about it. What action would drive you to sheer madness? I'll give you the answers at the end of the show, but I think you might be able to figure these out. But anyway, let's have some little entertainment. I have some criminal law stories here. They're called dumb criminal law stories. These are stories that I collect from around the world and uh, put them on my blog, birdsongslaw.com. I started this for my students several years ago when I was teaching law. Students love them. I read some of them on the air, and you can go to my blog, birdsongslaw.com, and see some of them. But here's some for today. First story is from California. The headline, wrong place at the wrong time. A knife-wielding dunce tried to rob a Southern California pizza restaurant right after burglars had broken in and stolen $1,500 from the cash register. Pisa Chalet workers were cleaning up after the burglary on a Tuesday in September of last year when Ernest Ramirez, 19, entered and demanded money. Unlucky for Ramirez, there was a city of Covina police officer nearby investigating the burglary and thwarted the robbery. Mr. Ramirez was arrested and charged with armed robbery and resisting arrest. <laughs> wrong place at the wrong time. Dumb criminals. Too many of them. Here's one from California, too. Headline on this story, Finders, Keepers, Losers, Weepers. In El Cerrito, California, on a September day of last year, police found a man on the street trying to break security tags off of what? 152 bottles of Jack Daniels whiskey. The 20-year-old told police that he had just happened to have found all the bottles of bourbon, worth about $4,000. Police did not make an immediate arrest, but took the man's name and address and confiscated the liquor. Police theorized that the whiskey was probably stolen from nearby supermarkets. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers, huh? <laughs> we go to Canada now for this next story. The headline says, The jailhouse wallet is used once again. 
For those of you who do not know what the jailhouse wallet is, maybe after hearing this story, you'll understand more about it. Here's the story. An Ottawa, Canada man was sentenced recently to two years in prison for breaking into a jail with a buttload of illegal drugs. Damien O'Reilly, 20 years old, was apprehended for smuggling marijuana, matches, tobacco, and rolling papers into the Ottawa Wa Carrollton Detention Center. Jail authorities discovered that O'Reilly was hiding the contraband inside of eight Kinder Surprise chocolate eggs stuffed where? Stuffed in his rectum. That's the jailhouse wallet. <laughs> Most people don't know about that, but us prosecutors and defense attorneys know about it. All right, another story from Canada. Headline. Talk about irony, this is it. We learned that two women broke out of jail only to be caught a day later. Kelsey Mask, 23, and Samantha Troop, 20, jumped the fence at the Edmonton, Canada Institution for Women on a Monday night in September. However, the fugitives were arrested the next day at the SideQuest Adventures. That's an adventure park that has what's called an escape room where people pay to solve puzzles that will unlock the doors of mock dungeons. <laughs> Talk about irony. This is it. <laughs> they break out of jail and they go to an amusement park where they have to go to an escape room to solve puzzles that will unlock mock dungeons. <laughs> Here's a sad and funny story, funny and sad, from China. The headline on this one read, Foul Play. A Shanghai man was arrested when he stole a black swan from a public park and cooked it and ate it with a side of radishes. The man, a delivery driver known only as Zhao, 30, was sentenced to six months in jail for his strange taste for waterbirds. Authorities said he had been fishing with friends at the park when he snatched the bird that he later cooked and ate at home. <coughs> A story from Florida now. Headline, Young Love, Dumb Love. A teenager allegedly stole his uncle's police uniform and wore it to impress a girl. But he ended up in jail instead. Isaiah Lima, 18 of the town of Bellevue, Florida, was charged with impersonating an author, officer with impersonating an officer after taking his uncle's uniform and patrol car and having a friend film him during a traffic stop, according to police. Young love, dumb love indeed. <laughs> oh, these stories, they're, they're people, the things that people do. Let's see, I've got another story from Florida. The headline read, What a Circus. The story. A man dressed as a clown robbed a Waffle House restaurant in Ocala, Florida. He was with an accomplice who was wearing a goat mask. The bandits ran into the restaurant, and one of them whipped out a pistol. According to authorities, they demanded cash. We learned that the clown and goat fled with a bag of cash. They are still at large. They may not be hard to find. 
One is dressed as a clown, and the other one has a goat head. <laughs> How about this story from Illinois, folks? Headline. The headline read, Grand Theft Tractor. A teenager is facing attempted murder charges for allegedly stealing a bulldozer and using it to run over a manned police car. Austin White, 18, stole the bulldozer from a construction site and was driving it down streets in Kankakee, Illinois, when police intervened. Mr. White wound up allegedly backing over the police vehicle, nearly crushing the officer inside. And yes, an arrest was made. <laughs> Grand theft tractor, my, my. Here's a story from Indiana. Headline was prophetic. He should have stopped for gas instead. He should have stopped for gas instead. A man who robbed a BP filling station made off with cash, but was caught a short time later. Why? The robber had run out of gas. LaPorte, Indiana police report that Sean Harris, 33, told the clerk he had a gun and took off with money, food, cigarettes. The clerk called the police. They caught up with him. No gun was found, but he was arrested. He should have stopped for gas instead. <laughs> okay, let's go to Kentucky. Headline, call the fashion police on this guy. It's been reported that a blockhead broke into a funeral home in the city of Litchfield, Kentucky, and snatched a dead man's clothes. The man was caught on surveillance camera peeling off his own clothes before slipping into the dead man's clothes. We learn further from a report that he also took the decedent's jewelry and the keys to the funeral home's hearst. No arrest has been made on that one. <laughs> Boy, these guys are dumb, I tell you. Okay, last story today, folks, from Kentucky. The headline on this one reads, Call him a soda jerk. A man held up a Henderson fast food restaurant, that's Henderson, Kentucky, on a Monday in late September, dressed in a Coca-Cola bottle costume. The handgun-waving robber threatened the manager of Rallies of a Rallies restaurant, who was opening up and made off with $500. No arrest has yet been made. <laughs> Those are our criminal, dumb criminal law stories for this week, folks. These are all true stories. I collect them from all over the world. You can read more of them on my blog. Go to birdsongslaw.com, all one word, birdsongslaw.com. You can find my stories on my blog, or you can go to amazon.com, and you can type in Professor Birdsong, and you'll see my books come up. You'll get some laughs from reading us. This is Birdsong. Stick with us. There's more to come. Birdsong back with you. 
I have a story from Paul Harvey. It's entitled Meltdown. By now, many of you may remember or read about the 1979 Pennsylvania Three Mile Island nuclear mishap. It was about a reactor that had gone bad. This story relates to another such problem. The atomic reactor has gone out of control. No one at the installation ever thought it would come to this, and as far as I know, nothing quite like it has never happened before. But the worst has happened. Meltdown. There is a meltdown of the reactor core. This much is certain. The core must be disassembled before more radiation escapes, and since the task is beyond the capability of most of most sophisticated robots, somebody has got to get down there and do it by hand. No one will volunteer, so someone has been chosen. He is the rest of the story. He, at the time, is a 26-year-old lieutenant in the United States Navy. His qualifications... He is highly trained in reactor technology and nuclear physics. He was among the nuclear technicians who aided General Electric workers in the construction of a prototype plant near Knowles Atomic Power Laboratory. He has worked with and at the Atomic Energy Commission headquarters in Washington, D.C. He has high security clearance status. He is being flown to the meltdown site. When he gets there, he will study an exact replica of the reactor, which has already been constructed nearby. Working with a team of technicians, he will rehearse each tedious step of the dis dismantling procedure. Television cameras will monitor the moment-by-moment -moment condition of the real reactor. And then, accompanied by two other technicians from the team, Wearing radiation-resistant clothing and armed only with tools in his hands, he will witness a sight no man has ever seen before, a melted-down atomic reactor core. The disassembly will be carried out in stages, each a minute and 30 seconds in duration. In that amount of time, the lieutenant will be exposed to, will in fact absorb, the maximum allowable radiation for a human being for an entire year. So the economy of time will be paramount. There will be none to spare for fumbling with a bolt or a valve or a valve connection and no room for a mistake for everyone's sake. The ultimate fate of this young lieutenant, as a matter of hypothesis, depends on which expert you listen to. If those who fear the worst are to be believed, then the consequences will far outweigh sickness or sterility, and the price of this mission for which the lieutenant did not volunteer will be certain death. He must live long enough, however, to disassemble the reactor. And he will succeed. 
for the unimaginable catastrophe, this then unprecedented meltdown of an atomic reactor occurred at a nuclear plant near Chalk River, Canada, 67 years ago. The events we've just related took place in 1951, and the hero of this true story, and the hero of that true story, the young Navy lieutenant who led a team of technicians into the yawning mouth of hell, did not die. He did risk his life, but he's still alive. In fact, he became President of the United States. His name, Jimmy Carter. He's 93 years old now and still living. You now know the rest of the story. <laughs> These are good little stories by Paul Harvey and his son. Glad you're sticking with us. I guess now you want to hear the answers to the riddles. Maybe you figured them out. The first one was the easiest one. What did the beach say as the tide came in? What did the beach say as the time? No, what did the beach say as the tide came in? Well, the answer is the beach said, long time no see. <laughs> That's an easy one. I guess most of you figured that one out. Second one's a little bit harder. What rock group has four guys that don't sing? What rock group has four guys that don't sing? What's the answer? If you haven't figured it out, it's Mount Rushmore. It's a rock group that has four guys that don't sing. <laughs> oh, God. There's Washington, there's Jefferson, there's Teddy Roosevelt. I don't know who the fourth person is. That's the rock group that has four guys that don't sing. All right, the very last one. What action will drive you to sheer madness? What action would drive you to sheer madness? The answer is shaving a crazy sheep, folks. <laughs> shaving a crazy sheep will drive you to sheer madness. Get it? Sheer madness? <laughs> this is Birdsong. Let me leave you with a little quote. Time is our most valuable asset, yet we tend to waste it, kill it, and spend it rather than invest it. Be wise with your time this week, folks, but come back and listen to Birdsong. Love being with you. <laughs>